The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at www.harmonybible.org. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace in our lives. God, we pray and ask for an extra measure of your grace this morning. God, as we look to your word, may we not come to it lightly. May instead we feel the gravity of what we are about to do, and that is to listen to what you have to say to us, and then the responsibility of heeding its instruction, of applying it to our lives. God, I pray and ask that you'd be with us now as we do so, that you'd just give us grace upon grace, work mightily in us and through us, and change us as we do so. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and as we've done so, we've kind of seen how Paul is writing this letter to the church in Colossae, and we don't know all of the details of the false teaching that was being presented to the church in Colossae, but we can kind of piece together some of the details by by what he tells them. He doesn't say, such and such is wrong, but based on what he says is right, we can see what some of these false teachers may have been presenting. And overall, the book of Colossians is all about the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is enough. That they need not find some deeper knowledge. That they need not uh, bow to some legalistic tradition. But instead, that Christ is enough. And these false teachers are coming in and they're blending, more than likely they're blending some sort of pre-Gnosticism, this idea that the body is evil, but the spirit is good, with this Jewish legalism. And Paul says, no, 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 you have Jesus. You have Jesus, and He is all that you need. So today's message, as we work through, as we look at today's message, I originally was going to preach through uh, Colossians 2, 11-15, and I got into the message and I realized I bit off way more than I could chew. So we're going to back up. I think we're just going to do Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12. We're going to tackle two whole verses today. And today's message, really, there's not a a lot of commentary by me. There's a lot of Scripture. And I know that may not be as entertaining. However, I firmly believe that if anything is going to change us today, it's probably not going to be my words. It's going to be the words of, of Scripture. It's going to be God's Word. So I praise Him for that, for Him bringing... A lot of these cross-references to mind and these uh, developing this theology of what the whole Bible says in relation to circumcision and baptism, which is what we will be talking about. And today's message is especially appropriate as we uh, think of yesterday being Independence Day. So without further ado, let's look at our text. Colossians 2, verses 11. We'll, go, we'll read all the way through 15. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 2, starting at verse 11. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, 
having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So you may be thinking, what does this have to do with Independence Day? Well, what does this have to do with a day that celebrates the freedom of our nation, you ask? Because I said that it's a perfect day for this text. Well, in order to understand why I would say that, we need to understand what it really means to be free. The other day I read an article by John Bloom, and in that article he addresses that very question. What does it mean to be free? He writes this, In the American sense, freedom is the ability to pursue one's self-determined happiness with minimal constraints imposed by others or by the state. Tyranny is an external force that inhibits the pursuits of one's internal desires. He goes on and says, Christian freedom is very different. According to the Scripture, the worst tyranny is one's errant, self-determined, internal desires. So he says the the Christian freedom recognizes that the worst enemy is our self-determined desires, our internal desires. And the greatest freedom comes from submitting to an external force, God. And here's how Jesus said it. John 8, 34-36 Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He goes on and says, internal sin is the worst tyrant. And the external son is the most wonderful liberator. True freedom is the Christ-bought freedom from the guilt of sin and the Spirit-empowered freedom from the governance of sin. But this is not the freedom of personal independence. It is liberation from the tyranny of sin and Satan so that we may live joyfully under the loving servant King that is Jesus Christ. In other words, while it's a blessing To live in a country where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are fundamental rights as citizens, we must also realize that our pursuit of happiness must be directed toward pleasing God and not pleasing ourselves. So the connection to Independence Day is that this passage describes to us what real freedom looks like. This passage is all about freedom in Christ. So by way of reminder and to set this passage, verses 11 and 12 of Colossians 2 into context, let's go back a couple of verses and remind ourselves where we were at last time we were in the book of Colossians. Colossians 2, starting at verse 8, says this, See to it that no one takes you captive, through philosophy, the Greek literally says through the philosophy, that which is empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. 
For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. Paul says, see to it that you're not taken captive by empty philosophy. This philosophy that's, that's empty, that's worldly, right? And that is, that is infantile in nature. Don't be taken captive by what the world calls wisdom. And then, in verses 11 and 12, the text we're focusing on today, that's, in light of that, he says, and in Him, so he says, in Him you were made complete, and He's the head of all rule and authority, and then verse 11, and in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. I was thinking this morning about how I was going to post what I was going to be preaching on this morning, and I started to actually post on the Facebook page, join us this morning as we talk about circumcision, and I I just couldn't come up with a way to not sound crass, and I just ended up not posting anything. And the point of this text is really all about a spiritual circumcision. The point of this text is really all about the fact that Christ is sufficient. As Paul has said again and again in the book of Colossians. And he's reminding us now that Christ is sufficient. Not only must they stand firm against worldly wisdom, but they must be careful not to embrace religious legalism. For they have already been made complete in Christ. Therefore, they don't need the empty philosophy of men. However, neither do they need religious rituals. Empty religious rituals. Now, I'm not saying that circumcision was an empty religious ritual. We'll kind of dig into that a little bit more now. But he's saying you don't need just these religious rituals. You see, the the false seizures in Colossae were evidently saying that the Gentiles who had become followers of Christ needed to become circumcised in order to become obedient. In order to be obedient, in order to be a Christian, they had to first become a Jew. Then they could become a truly obedient Christian. And Paul addresses this issue head on. He says, in him, you were already circumcised. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The Greek literally says a circumcision unhandmade. We don't have that word in English. Not, I don't think that's an actual word. Unhandmade. This word appears two other times in Scripture. In Mark 14.58, says, We heard him say, they're accusing Jesus, they're saying, We heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days... We'll build another made without hands. By the way, that's not what Jesus said. They they take a piece of the truth and they twist it. But nonetheless, they say, We heard Him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. So it appears there. It also appears in 2 Corinthians 5.1 in speaking about our bodies. Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, our body, is torn down, if we die, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Not made with hands. Unhandmade. So the Greek word 
here carries the idea of that which is spiritual. I will build a temple which is spiritual. Or when we die, we will have a body which is spiritual. Not physical in nature, but spiritual in nature. So Paul is saying to the church in Colossae that they have already been circumcised, but with a spiritual circumcision. One that was performed by God in the spiritual realm and not by men in the physical realm. Now in order to understand this, we need to understand why circumcision was such a big deal in the first place. I mean, why get so excited, so wound up about this idea of circumcision? Listen to the words of Genesis 17, 9-14. God said to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout the ger- their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh on your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not from your descendants. A servant who is born in your house Excuse me. A servant who was born in your house or who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus says my, thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It sounds like God means business. See, the act of circumcision was commanded by God because it was to be a sign of His covenant with His people. However, circumcision was never meant to be seen as a ritual by which grace might be obtained. Understand that. Circumcision was not a means by which grace might be obtained. It was instead an act, an outward act, that demonstrated the need for God's grace. It was an act that said we need God's grace in our lives. And as a community, as a group of people, we are recognizing that need. We're associating together saying we need God's grace. John MacArthur says it well when he says, Circumcision was only the outward demonstration that man was born sinful and needed cleansing. He goes on to describe the actual Um, process of circumcision and says this, this process was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. You see, the Scripture is clear that God was and is interested in far more than religious ritual. Leviticus 26.41 says, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. This is God speaking. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they can then make amends for their iniquity. He says, I was acting in hostility toward them so that I could deliver them to the land of their enemies or hopefully they would humble themselves. They would humble their uncircumcised heart. Deuteronomy 10.16, God says, So circumcise your heart. And stiffen your neck no longer. Jeremiah 4.4 4, 
Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Or Acts 7.51, You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. You see, the point is that God wanted more than outward conformity. God wasn't concerned so much with the the act of circumcision as to what the act represented. He was concerned about the obedience of those who would submit to Him, who saw the great need. The great need that they needed to be cleansed from the depths of their being. Yet many Jews trusted in their heritage And in their connection, whether by birth or by religious ritual, by circumcision, they trusted in that. And they believed that that was their connection to the religious community. That's why Romans 2, verses 17-29, through Paul says, But if you bear the name Jew, and rely upon the law of God, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He says, if you are these things, if you are a Jew, and you boast in the law of God, and you're circumcised, you therefore, who teach one another, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and the circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Circumcision is that which is from the heart, by the Spirit. It's the cutting away of the old self. It's a graphic picture of needing to be cleansed. Scripture makes it clear that these Jews, many of these Jews were trusting in something other than God. They were trusting in their heritage, trusting in their faith. Just as we read in Romans 2, Paul goes on in Romans 4 and he says, What shall we say that Abraham, he speaks of Abraham and he says, Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, what has he found? Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And and then verse 10. And how was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, 
but while uncircumcised. You see, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not some outward act. That's not what, what he was credited as righteous for, but instead his faith, his belief in God. And yet, many still trusted, even after Paul wrote these words, still trusted in their rituals and their traditions more than God. As though circumcision or keeping the Sabbath or whatever could save them. You know, I went to Israel a number of years ago, and uh, they still, many Jews, most Jews still celebrate the Sabbath, the Shabbat. And from uh, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, they'll celebrate the Sabbath. And it's an interesting thing when you're in Israel and, and the Sabbath is going on because we went to the temple just before sundown and the Jews, there were Jews coming from everywhere, coming into the, to the city, gathering around the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, uh, where they believe the Spirit of God resides today. They would gather around, they'd celebrate the Sabbath. And, and in some sense, it was beautiful at first, until you realized what it was all about. It was about keeping the law. The law which cannot be kept. And it became all about tradition and the focus of the law. Some ritualistic tradition. Not about the one who wrote the law. And in our hotel, we had a Shabbat elevator. I was staying on the 17th floor. And the mistake you only make once is get on the Shabbat elevator during the Sabbath. Because during the Sabbath, the Shabbat elevator, the buttons don't work. Instead, it stops on every single floor. So the way that works is if you're a Jew you know that during the Sabbath, there's a little sign that says Shabbat elevator, and you get on the, the Shabbat elevator because if you push a button, the buttons don't work, therefore it's not work, you're safe, you haven't violated the Sabbath, and you're not working. The elevator stops on every single floor. Well, when you're on the 17th floor, eventually you realize by the third or fourth floor, it's time to get out, go to the Gentile elevator, and do some work, right? And you push the buttons. And when you go to your hotel room, you actually get there, there's a Shabbat switch so that you can flick a switch which sets everything in its current position. So if it's on, it stays on. If it's off, it stays off. That way, because what happens when the power goes out, folks? What do you do? Well, we all do it, right? You walk into a room, you flick the light switch, right? So imagine being a Jew. What do you do on the Sabbath? You walk into a room, you flick the light switch. The light turns on. You just violated the Sabbath. Well, we've got a solution for that. We'll have a Shabbat switch so that when you flick that switch, the light doesn't change. Therefore, you didn't work. And you didn't violate the Sabbath. And it just becomes all about this legalistic tradition. And when we're there, and it's after sundown, and there's an Israeli guard who's standing there with his machine gun, rightfully so, right, protecting the people. And I said, what about him? He's Jewish, right? He's working on the Sabbath. And, and the tour guide said, well, that's different. He's saving lives. And I said, huh, I knew somebody who saved lives on the Sabbath once. <laughs> they crucified him. Didn't go over well. You see, it becomes all about legalistic tradition. And it's easy to become critical of that type of thinking. However... While circumcision may not be 
seen as the means through which grace may be obtained today, we still see that kind of teaching in the church. Now, maybe specifically in baptism and the Lord's Supper, where somehow, today, some would teach that somehow there's special grace that's given to us through the receiving of communion, or special grace through baptism, that we're recipients of God's grace when we get baptized. And that is simply not true. Not in its truest sense. Then instead, we do those things as a remembrance of the grace that has already been given to us. See, God today is interested in far more than religious ritual, just like He was then. That's why in Isaiah 1, He says, Verses 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not Listen, your hands are covered with blood. Those are hard words. Imagine, imagine the Lord saying to us, bring your offerings no longer. Your tithes, your church gathering, your silly songs that you sing, I cannot tolerate them anymore. Or as the psalmist said in Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17, for I do not, for you do not delight in sacrifice. He's speaking to God. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, that you will not despise. So today you're sitting here and you were born into a Christian family. You come to church, you've been baptized. You take communion, you might even tithe. Big deal. God does not desire those things from you. He wants your heart. He doesn't desire merely those things from you. He wants you to be obedient in those things because they flow out of a heart that seeks to glorify Him. And it's like stench in His nostrils when that's not the attitude with which we come to the communion table or with which we become baptized. And the problem is, the problem is that God says, I want your heart, and obedience is not in us, for we are rebels. Psalm 2.2 says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and His anointed. And we are just like them. Yes, you are just like President Obama. Right? The king of the earth. The rulers of the land. You take your stand against Him and His anointed. We do it all the time, folks. John 3, 6, That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Or Romans 8, 8, Those who are in the flesh, they cannot, cannot please God. For Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
You see, in this passage here in Colossians communicates this inability to please God by telling us we were dead spiritually. So how is this problem going to be fixed? Well, Christ is the only one who can fix it. He is the one who circumcises hearts. He is the one who removes our body of flesh. Our fleshly desires and our ways. And He gives us a new heart. You see, in our natural state, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's why the Lord Himself said, you must be born again. Because you are dead. I've actually had someone say to me, oh, you're not one of those born again Christians, are you? I used to have a license plate on my motorcycle that said born again. And said, you're not actually one of them born again Christians, are you? And I said, oh, I didn't know there was another kind, right? Because there's no other kind of Christian. According to Jesus, anyway. Jesus in John 3 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, 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 I say to you, unless one is born of water, born of natural birth, and born of the Spirit, born of spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That a natural birth is not enough because we are born into this world dead in our trespasses and sins. The cutest little baby is born dead in their trespasses and sins. And they cannot, cannot enter the kingdom of God without His grace. And that's why He says, you must be born not only of water, not just a natural birth, but also born of the Spirit. For you, Nicodemus, are spiritually dead. So let's get back to our text. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. A spiritual circumcision. A a circumcision that's not made by man, but a circumcision that has been made by God. Not a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of your body of flesh, your fleshly body, your evil desires. He says this has happened in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The severing of, the removal of your old self. Having been buried with Him in baptism. And also raised with Him. Having been made new, no longer as a servant to the flesh, but now as a servant to God. So how does this happen? Well, not by the ritual of circumcision. Not even, not even by the ritual of baptism. For just as the circumcision described is spiritual in nature, so is the baptism in this text. Paul's not talking about the act of water baptism, but instead that which is a representation of spiritual baptism. That which is a, a, a representation of the real act in our lives. So some... My loving Presbyterian friends would get this wrong and they would say, well, here's the thing. This verse is talking about how baptism replaces circumcision. It's a sign of the covenant. And I'm saying, no, he's not even talking about circumcision. He's talking about spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism. Let's not get this messed up. 
He's not talking about spiritual circumcision and the act of water baptism. Sure, the act of water baptism is on his mind, but he's talking about baptism, real baptism, baptism by the Holy Spirit. That to which water baptism merely points back to. So when we baptize, we'll say, this is an act of obedience that represents that which has already happened in the life of this believer. He's talking about the act that has already happened. Spiritual baptism. Paul says, you were buried and you were raised up. You were baptized with Him. Not through water, but through faith, he says. Through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. The baptism he is talking about is not infant baptism, not even believer's baptism. It's spiritual baptism, the baptism that happens the moment you are regenerated. The moment you are born again. That's what he's talking about. Being born again. You died to your old self and you were raised to newness of life. Water baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. So while there are those within Christendom who say water baptism saves, they miss the whole point of the text. And there are those who say, well, this is talking about water baptism. Baptism doesn't save they miss the point. There are those who say, no, it is talking about water baptism, and water baptism does save, and they miss the point. You see, Paul doesn't want the church in Colossae to be fooled into thinking that they need to participate in some sort of religious ritual in order to receive grace. Water baptism doesn't save someone any more than circumcision changes someone's heart. You can circumcise somebody, but it doesn't change their heart. Instead, Paul is reminding the believers in Colossae what God has already done for them. He is reminding them that God has cut away the old sinful nature. That He has given them a new desire. A desire to please Him and not just please themselves. And He's reminding them that He has raised them to newness of life through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. See, being a follower of Jesus and walking in obedience and water baptism goes hand in hand. Not because water baptism is a means to which you might receive grace, but instead because it's a testimony of the grace you've already received. The grace you received through faith. Baptism is a picture of dying and being raised to newness of life. So the natural reaction, once you have been baptized spiritually, is to show the world. And how do you show the world? Through water baptism. And now, we need to wrap this up, getting back to the connection with Independence Day. Right? How does all of this connect with Independence Day? I pray that as you celebrated freedom yesterday, you didn't think of freedom as the ability to pursue your own self-determined happiness. Right? But instead, you realize that true freedom comes from being born again. The true freedom comes from being raised to newness of life. The true freedom comes so that you can live in submission to God, that true freedom is being a slave to Christ. So how do we apply all of this, both individually and corporately, here at Harmony Bible Church? How do we take all of this and then apply it to our lives? Well, number one, we must be circumcised in heart and raised to newness of life. We must be born again. I don't know whether you have experienced that or not, but you need to. And today is the day of salvation. If you have not been born again, today is the day to experience that. 
Today is the day to fall on your face before God and say, my heart is uncircumcised. I need you to cut away the old self and raise me up to newness of life, for I am dead. And before those words can even come out of your mouth, it's already happened. Because if you're uttering those words, I assure you, God has done it. We have to be freed from the pursuit of our fleshly desires. We must be circumcised in heart and raised to newness of life. And number two, we must not be subject to, the, to a yoke of slavery. Thinking that we can please God with our sacrifices, our rituals, whether it be whatever it is, baptism, tithing, going to church, just going through the motions. Paul addresses that pretty clearly in Galatians 5. <laughs> he says, those who are seeking to push these traditions on you, he says, namely circumcision, I wish they'd mutilate themselves. It's so important to them, why don't they mutilate themselves? He's pretty crass. He says, these things, they're, not, they're a picture of what God has done and is doing through you. They're not, they're not the grace. They're not the way in which you receive grace. So don't be subject to slavery. Don't be enslaved by these things. Somebody says, if you don't go to church every Sunday, you're not a Christian. If you don't tithe, you're not a Christian. If you don't t- partake of communion then you're not a Christian. If somebody says those things, they are dead wrong. However, if you don't do those things, you have to ask, have I received God's grace? Have I been born again? Because the the desire should be in me. I'm telling you folks, prior to 19 19 years old, this is the last place I would ever be on a Sunday morning is here with you folks. You're nice people and all, right? But God gave me a new desire. And because of that desire, my patterns changed, my life changed. And number three, not only must we be circumcised in heart, but not only must we be born again, not only must we not be subject to a yoke of slavery, number three, we must live in submission to God for true freedom comes from being a slave to Christ. Submission that flows from the heart. So things like baptism, going to church, tithing, they're not means by which we receive grace, but instead they're responses to the grace that God's already given us. They're the appropriate response to what God has done in us and through us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, I just pray that you be with us. I thank you for the work you have done in my life. And I pray your blessing upon the believers here. I pray your blessing upon everyone here. God, I pray that everyone here can say that the old self has been cut away. Not that we don't battle with the old self. Not that we don't fight the desires of the old self at times. But that instead they've been replaced with new desires. That God, in some sense, we are walking every day at war with ourselves. I praise you for that. And God, I pray that that would be the reality of everyone here. That they would be born again. That they would be given a new desire. That the old self would be cut off. and That they would be raised to newness of life. And God, I pray and ask, that we would all live in submission to You. Not that we would want to legalistically focus on these ritualistic acts, but instead 
that we would do these acts of worship out of true reverence and love for You. We pray that especially now as we come to the communion table. And God, pray Your blessing upon that. May it not be seen as a means through which we may receive grace, but instead a remembrance of the grace already given to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Harmony Bible Church, visit www.harmonybible.org. God bless, and to God be the glory.